Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, Surprised by the Eucharist. This September 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. Well, good evening, and um, thanks for coming tonight. This is our second chance, because we announced last week that we weren't going to have a talk <laughs> tonight. But I realised after that... Um, the holidays haven't started yet. So luckily, uh, Robert, Robert's always got to talk up his sleeve, and this one is a very good one. And I'm glad you're here tonight, because it's a long time since we've had Robert, and uh, so I'm going to present Robert to you. And the talk is going to be surprised by the Eucharist. Yeah, thanks, Harlette. I, I don't always have a fresh talk up my sleeve, uh, I, I got this talk up my sleeve because I presented it, the, this version, uh, or what will be a shortened version of it today, our Christ Week mission on campus. Um, so tonight's one's going to be a little bit more full. Hopefully I won't bore you. Uh, I expect it to go for some time, so if you want to ask questions during the talk, feel free to do so. so you don't have to wait an hour and a half, I, I imagine. We'll see how we go. Uh, <coughs> Surprised by the Eucharist is, a, is an adaption of the, from the book Surprised by Truth. Uh, you've probably all heard that book by Patrick Madrid. Uh, but Patrick Madrid himself had adapted a, a previous title by C.S. Lewis, which is a book Surprised by Joy. So, um, anyway, it's developing. Today, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story today. I was surprised by something else today. Uh, when I was preparing this talk in my office at, at the chaplaincy, I just finished a round of posturing on campus, which can be pretty hard work sometimes. I got back into my office and I, I read through my notes and I was a little bit drowsy and I said, look, I'll have a power nap for about 15 minutes, which is about 11.30. Uh, when I woke up, there was this guy standing right in front of me in my office and he was in the process of fleecing the whole office of all the computers and uh, when I just woke up, this is surprised by something it's else. Of you being yeah, there. I was there, and he walked into the chaplaincy. And normally we get beggars walking in, and uh, this guy was young, about twenty, and he was standing right in front of me. And he, and he was surprised that I had just woken up for no reason. I think it was my guardian angel who tapped me on the shoulder to wake up, and he was standing right in front of me. And he was a bit surprised. He said, have you got the time? I said, yes, it's 11.40. And I just got a bit suspicious. I was, at first, I thought he was a student, as I said. And I just checked to see he had nothing in his hand or in his pocket or he didn't try to reach for the scissors or the letter opener on my desk to have a go at me. And he started leaving and I followed him. And I noticed that the one laptop was missing, the other laptop was disconnected on the floor. And I chased him. And he ran out of the building. I had a few words with him. I didn't swear, but I, I, had, I, I threw a few words at him as he was escaping, and I went outside to see if I could track him down. Uh, so that was another thing I was surprised by today. 
Fortunately, I found the missing laptop. He'd hidden it in the, in the foyer outside our main door. Uh, it would have been pretty hard for me to explain to my boss uh, how all the computers were fleeced while I was in the office having a 15-minute nap. Uh, anyway. But what I can't get over is how he had the temerity to... Very brazen, but you know what I don't get over? How I woke up at that moment. Because if I had woken up one minute later, he was gone with the computers. Do you think maybe people who are on drugs have got that kind of um, false... Uh, he didn't look like he was on drugs. He looked very sober, very well-dressed, very clean-cut. At first I thought he was a uni student. He'd come to visit us. And quite a few do on occasions. He just pop off, come off the street and pop up into the, our office, you know. Anyway, as I said, that was something else that surprised me today. Why am I going to talk about this talk? Well, as I said, I prepared it originally for our Christweek mission, which is uh, always aimed at uh, the non-Catholics on campus to some extent. And we had a very successful mission, thanks God, and we engaged a lot of Protestants, non-Catholics. Uh, some are quite amenable. Some of them we can do further work on, and uh, hopefully something will come from it from that point of view. But what I wanted to relate, I called this surprised by truth from Billy Graham to Catholicism. And it's a, half of it is basically my story. So I'll bore you with those details for, say, the first half an hour before I look at the second part about the Eucharist as such. Uh, when I was growing up, I was, I was always to some extent religious. Thankfully, I, was, I had parents that were certainly had faith and some level of practice. I was always interested in religious things from very early on. Even if I was watching the news, I was always happy to hear that the news was reporting big crowds in churches at Easter or Christmas. Uh, and I always loved Christmas, as you can understand, and always knew it had religious significance, etc. Uh, from an apologetics point of view, I had some early inklings of of apologetics, not knowing what the word meant, but you know the concept that there were disagreements and conflicts between religions, even when I was young. Um, one of them was because my father's youngest brother had become Jehovah's Witness, and so I knew that you know you got to be careful not to change your religion from Catholic to something else. It certainly would have made my father angry if we had done that. Uh, I remember early on uh, when my dad owned a shop that there was this elderly woman who used to come in as a customer and she was a bit mean on occasion. She looked mean. I had that vibe as a six-year-old that she was mean. And my dad once said to me, you know, be careful of her. She hates Catholics. I think, well, why would anyone want to hate Catholics, you know? Uh, I can guess now that she was probably some Sydney Anglican type or some Baptist type or whatever. Anyway, another instance uh, was when Pope Paul VI was visiting Australia in 1970. I remember my brother John, who's here tonight, said to me he had a friend who hated the Pope. And I was thinking, well, why would anyone want to hate the Pope? You know, and these are just questions that someone who's six, seven years of age would ask. For me, um, going now, heading, say, 
straight towards the Billy Graham event. That was when I was 15, um, in 1979. I had a friend in my year group named Stephen, who was a, probably for about a year, I'd known Stephen in primary school, from about year four onwards, say from about 1973 onwards. And Stephen was just Stephen, another guy in the class. I didn't know him to be particularly religious. But somewhere around 1978, about a year before, he had some type of profound Baptist conversion experience. He would tell me years later that his parents had actually considered Catholicism, but rejected it on the grounds that it wasn't biblical enough. Anyway, Steve had been some a convert or to a fervent form of the Baptist faith. And he was a type who'd always bring his big, thick, good news Bible to class in his bag every day, which is good. You know, that seemed very good. It seemed like a great thing. Um, somewhere around April 1979, my friend Stephen and another friend who was uh, from India, his name was Razor, they came up to me once in the playground and they said, you know, Robert, you should stop swearing. You're always swearing. At that time, for me, four-letter words was normal. Like, I didn't even think twice about it. Uh, and I thought about it. Yeah, it's a good idea. I should stop swearing. You know, because I knew swearing was wrong. You know, I had... I was praying... That, at that time in my life, my spiritual life was praying for about one minute a day. It would have consisted of one Our Father, one Hail Mary, one Glory Be, one Act of Contrition. Enough, five prayers, I'd say, in one minute. I remember starting, I had chosen to start praying on a daily basis when my dad had gone to Lebanon two years earlier, 1977. I thought, look, I need to pray because Lebanon is a pretty dangerous place. It certainly was in 1977. Uh, so I was praying, but... And probably I was going to Mass two or three times a month. Uh, but my, my spiritual life was non-existent. What I knew was even, if possible, more non-existent. Uh, and I, was, I cared more about academic achievement, sporting achievement, how good I looked, you know, whether I was coming first in my classes, whatever, these type of things. Um, I thought it was a good idea to stop swearing. I probably lasted a couple of days. Uh, about two weeks later, Stephen challenged me again. This time he, he mentioned this guy coming from America, really big, famous preacher. His name was Billy Graham. You know, I should come and listen to him. I said, that's a good idea, you know. Jesus is important. I believe in Jesus. We're Catholics. We believe in Jesus. Yeah, we'll, I'll go. I'll let mum and dad know. Mum and dad let me go to events at night on occasion. I remember I used to go to the cricket when it was a big new phenomenon, you know, day-night games as early as 1978. You know, as a 14-year-old, I was going to cricket late at night, so I could go to Randwick Race Course to listen to this guy from America. By coincidence, if you can call it that, maybe a couple of months earlier, I'd actually watched a documentary on television about Billy Graham before my friend Stephen had even mentioned him to me. And probably in hindsight, that show was put on TV uh, 
for the Australian public in lieu of the upcoming visit of Billy Graham. I didn't know that Billy Graham had been to Australia 20 years before in 1959, for example. Uh, and so that I had no idea how well known he was. Um, I watched this show and it was about Billy Graham in Singapore. And he's in this big auditorium and he's preaching away and then they do the altar call and people come forward and they give themselves to Jesus Christ. And I was watching that and I was thinking, well, this is a good thing. This is great. And I was watching it and saying, well, good. The more they go down, the better. It's wonderful. And I was saying that as a person, again, who believed in Jesus Christ, was a Catholic, and I thought, you know, I wasn't really acutely aware of issues between Catholics and non-Catholics, Catholics and Protestants. I wasn't aware of the things that divided us to such an extent. Well, anyway, when I went with Stephen that night, it was May 31st, 1979. I remember it very well. It was a wet night. There was probably about 20,000 people there on that night. Billy Graham would run the same, or a series of talks that would go for about two weeks in Sydney and then again in another city. I remember reading just recently that Peter Jensen, uh, the Anglican leader in the Sydney Diocese, he actually went to every Billy Graham talk that was put on in Sydney in 1959. Uh, well, I went, I went with Stephen and two others, a guy named Joe and a guy named Andrew. Now, Joe was a Croatian, Andrew was a normal Aussie probably Anglican of some sort, and Stephen was a Baptist. We went as a group, we went as a group of guys, friends from, you know, year 10 in that, in that year group. Anyway, when the altar call came, um, I went down, and I wanted to go down, I went down for my own choice. I watched other people going down first, you know, looking that way and that way across the, the grandstand, as I said, of the probably 20,000 people there that night, and people were going down in droops and drafts. And I went down and I stood there in, the, in pretty thick grass, which was wet, and it was still, it was sprinkling raining. And we did that commitment. And I remember you gave your name and your details, and someone was down there to receive your name and details for follow-up soon after. Joe and Andrew also went down. We all went down, when, and we were all happy to do that, and when we came back, I remember travelling back on a bus, and the bus dropped us off at Punchbowl Baptist Church here in Arthur Street, Punchbowl, and we walked home from there. Walking home that night, it was very late, it was somewhere between 11 and 12 midnight, and that was very late when you are just 15. Um, we were all we had a sense of exhilaration, and we all said that to each other, you know, we really felt... And, and again, with reading something like out of the Acts of the Apostles, it, it felt like they're on the road to Emmaus, you know, when Jesus opened up the scriptures to those two men and their hearts were burning in them at that time. It really felt something like that. We all had that feeling of exhilarate, excitement and joy. <coughs> to put it in context, I had gone down to, 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 to identify precisely what I had done or had chosen to do. I had gone down to be a better follower of Jesus Christ in my life. There wasn't an issue about becoming Baptist or another type of Christian 
or leading the Catholic Church. That wasn't even in my mind, and it wasn't, uh, and I wasn't even considering such a thing. One thing I do remember, the only thing my dad said about me going that night is make sure you don't change your religion. Because my dad was uh, someone who never talked to his younger brother again after he became Jehovah's Witness. Uh, So, and I was scared about these Baptists coming later, following up, coming knocking on the door. And I was worried about that for a few weeks. And then he came. The person came to the door for follow-up. And I was very eager to make sure I answered the door and I spoke to the guy and I polite, I took the booklets and I politely said, yeah, thank you very much. Closed the door and hopefully that was it. You know, I, I'm definitely going to be a better person, a better, better follower of Jesus. I'm going to stop cheating in exams. I'm going to stop lying. I'm going to uh, you know, stop swearing. And I actually managed to do that. Took me about two weeks. But I didn't stop associating with Stephen at school or with any other people at school who were good believers. As far as I can remember, there weren't really any other good Catholics in the classroom that I knew of. Um, there was Stephen who stood out as a Baptist, and later on there was a guy named Mark who stood out as a Pentecostal. Well, what does that say for the religious education? This is a public school. Uh-huh. This is Punchbowl Boys. Sorry. Is Billy Graham a Baptist? I was originally Presbyterian. I don't know where he ended up exactly. I haven't read enough about him to know exactly where he's ended up. If he, if he has ended up, if he has ended up in some particular denomination only, or he's more pan-denominational, interdenominational. I'm not sure because certainly uh, there were people of buses coming from all different Protestant churches offloading their congregations and their invitees to that event. Okay? We know that Jensen's went as Sydney Anglicans. And my friend Stephen took us as, well, took himself and invited people under the umbrella of the Baptists. Okay. What was happening from then? I'm entering a new phase in my life where I think that I am, I'm better uh, in the practice of, of faith and prayer. Um, and I'm still associating with Stephen. And I'm invited and I attend these, uh, these sessions at lunchtime uh, during 1979-1980 in particular called ISCF, Interschool Christian Fellowship. And you probably get maybe half a dozen or a dozen more like a dozen, and sometimes a whole room full of young people in that class to listen to some guest speaker or some Bible study or whatever. Uh, and I remember some of the teachers there very clearly. There was a Mr. Knight, there was a Mr. Batten. Uh, there was probably four or five teachers on staff who were evangelical or Anglican or Lutheran who would be in that, that gathering. And I was happy to go there. I wasn't feeling under pressure to go there. Um, And sometimes there were some Catholics that I knew who would go there. And it was interesting because we were learning things. It was good for me to go through the Bible and we have talks and that show slide presentations. and, and And it was interesting to a large extent. And I was doing this most regularly in 1980. I began to... Uh, diminished in 1981. 
Um, and that was a deliberate choice of mine. I just didn't want to feel like I was going to be dragged into anything outside of the Catholic Church. I remember one particular lunchtime in ISCF where they were talking about one issue and I wasn't even thinking about it and I was just flicking through the Bible which we had on the desk, Good News for Modern Man, the Bible. And I just happened, ha- happened to flick to that passage in the Gospel of Matthew which related to Jesus having brothers and sisters and naming them. And honestly, I remember very well, I, I read that and I was shocked. And I had, like, I had a little panic and I broke out in some type of cold sweat. And I'm thinking, gosh, not only does it say he's got brothers and sisters, it actually names them. Joseph, James, Simon, Judas. The Catholic Church, this is, I knew the Catholic Church taught that Mary was a virgin and remained a virgin. And, and therefore Jesus didn't have any brothers and sisters. But it's so clear here in the Bible that he did. In the Catholic Church, what the explanation could it have for this? I didn't say that the Catholic Church is wrong against the Bible. I said, what can the Catholic Church say in response to this? This is from my flicking the Bible. As I was walking out of that class at the end of lunch, Mr. Batten was talking to this other young fellow who was a Catholic who happened to be there, younger than me. And Mr. Batten was telling him, you know, we don't regard Mary as any more important than any other holy woman of the Old Testament. This idea of Queen of Heaven is an exaggeration. And then he also said, you know, I can't understand how Catholics can have statues when it's so clear in the Bible that having statues is wrong. This all came as one avalanche after another in that half an hour. The consequence of that for me is that I stopped praying to Hail Mary for six years. From that moment, my reaction was <clears throat> anything Marian and devotional. I wasn't praying the rosary. I didn't know how. The, I didn't even know how the rosary worked, and I still didn't know even when I was in university, looking at a pamphlet. I remember here I am, really smart, in law school at Sydney Uni. And I'm looking at a pamphlet about the rosary and I couldn't work out how it works. That's how little I had about Marian devotion. And I was actually had, was made to feel adverse to it. You know, I just, you know, I just, I'm uncomfortable with it because of this experience here at ISCF. Now, basically, what's happening... Uh, on a regular basis, being friends with Stephen and then being part of the Punchbowl Baptist cricket team from 1981 to early 1986. So I'm associated with uh, fervent Baptists on a regular basis, particularly during the summer months when cricket is happening. And so I'm always hearing something from someone, but mostly Stephen. And Stephen and I would chat on occasion, and they're always friendly chats. There were never arguments or, not, or fights. And you could hardly call them debates because I had nothing to debate. I knew nothing. He <laughs> would talk about, Stephen would say things like, you know, infant baptism's not in the Bible. That's why we as Baptists baptize only adults. Or Robert, and this was, I'm conglomerating a series of comments that might have been spread over years into one bundle right now. And Stephen might say, you know, Catholics pray to the Pope. 
You can't be right, Stephen. That sounds dumb. Then he would make another comment. Do you know that there's a computer in Belgium? It's called The Beast. And it contains the names of everyone in the world. And Belgium's a Catholic country. I'm thinking, that sounds dumb as well. And then there was another comment like... You know, about the Eucharist. You know, we had a debate in our local church. We had a debate in our church, Stephen. We had a debate in our local church. And we took sides. One side saying that the bread and the wine is the body and blood. And the other saying it wasn't. And it was a really passionate debate. And those who were taking the side that it was the body and blood of Christ had surprisingly strong arguments. But it couldn't be his body and blood. Because here is Jesus saying, this is my body but it wasn't his body, because this is his body. Not this. This couldn't be his body if this was his body. That was his idol. It was comments like that, and I just didn't have any answers. I had what Cardinal Newman once described. I had 10,000 difficulties. I had no doubts. I just had difficulties. I was entrenched in one position, which is the Catholic Church must have an answer. How can a church that's so old, so big, not have an answer for all these issues? For all these mild attacks? Also within these comments from Stephen was one that he would repeat on a number of occasions, meaning, namely, that the Baptist Church is actually a restoration of authentic original Christianity that we find in the first 300 years. It was after Constantine that we begin to get all these accretions that become conglomerated into something called Catholicism. But the Baptist Church is a restoration of the Bible and original Christianity of the first three centuries. That's something he said on regular occasions, and it stuck into my head. Oh, I wonder if that's true, or how do I know? What can I read? There's nothing. I I wasn't searching or knew where to look for Catholic books. I wanted serious answers, but couldn't find them anywhere. When I got into law school, I was still in that situation in early 1982. In 83, we had a a group going at law school, Newman Society, and I joined that. Wanting answers to questions. I remember once there was a priest invited to give a talk, and he attacked Luther. I thought, oh, this is good. I want to hear this. I wanted answers, you know? I thought, in in hindsight, I thought, gosh, it was miraculous if there was any priest in the 80s attacking Luther. Anyway, and I just, this is what I really wanted in my heart and couldn't find it. I was, met a guy named Andrew, another Andrew, not the one I knew at high school, who was in the Evangelical Union, Sydney Union, it's otherwise known as EU. It's the main umbrella group for Protestants at Sydney University. It is not Anglican as such, but it's served by the Anglican chaplaincy. It's a conglomeration of anyone who's Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, Sydney Anglican, anyone, and put them into one group and call it a union, and the real union is just that they are against the Catholic Church. That's my opinion. <laughs> that there's no union in doctrine or practice. That's a fact. And I've challenged them on that on campus. Very nicely, of course. Um, well, anyway, 
It was when I was at law school that ray of light struck me, so to speak. Um, it was through adversity, because I got ill at the end of 1985, and, and in hindsight we know there was a consequence of, of a depression, which caused me to drop out of law school for the first time. Uh, even though I was only about six weeks away from finishing my degree. It was in that period where I was struggling with my studies that I, I began to give more time to Catholic friends that I met at Sydney Uni. And while I was visiting the house of one of these friends um, who lived in Redford, not far from the university main campus, that I was, went upstairs and in his office there was an old book which was falling apart. It must have been nearly a hundred years old. It was certainly all acid brown and the cover was broken and falling off. I picked it up and it was called The Question Box by Father Conway, printed by the Paulist Press in New York in the 1890s. I said, this looks interesting. I had to look at some of the questions. Wow, this is wow, this is all the topics I've been wanting answers on for many years. Well, I decided to borrow the book, I took it home. And I must have read it in about two to three days. It was 417 pages. And I've never read anything that quick in my life since then. I voraciously consumed the whole book. And it was a real, like that was my moment, like my St. Paul moment. Uh, you know, on the road to Damascus, you get that light that knocks you off the horse. And you can see clearly now, well, for me, that was the moment where I got knocked off my donkey. And uh, I got all the answers I ever wanted on every topic that I had difficulties with. Because this book covered everything, the papacy, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Virgin Mary, the saints, statues, the Inquisition, you name the topic, it, this priest had the answers. Was it a bit like Rumble? Uh, I think Rumble based it on him. Rumble's decades later. Rumble's books are much larger, many more questions, and in a, in a very similar spirit. What this Father Conway did, as he explains in his forward to his book. He had this parish in New York where he had this box and he invited anyone and everyone to put a question in writing in that box and he guaranteed an answer in seven days. And then he compiled all the answers into this book. This book is still available. If you do a search with Amazon.com, there's always five or six copies of this book for sale, the question box. And I do recommend you get it. Of course, dated being in the 1890s, but it's it's just so powerfully written, and the the biblical backing for Catholic teachings is just permeates every answer. But what's important for me here was that he provided answers that completely demolished what Stephen was trying to set up in my mind over those years. And the way that Father Conway achieved that in me was all these quotes he had from the early church that I'd never heard of these people before. And I never heard them from Stephen. Stephen would just give this generic comment 
that the Baptists were the restoration of the early church. Okay. Well, if I was to go back to Stephen today, I'd say, okay, could you please elaborate? What doctrine are you talking about? And where do we find Baptist beliefs in writing in those early centuries? And give me the names of these people and their significance in the early church. Well, Stephen never went into that detail and couldn't go into that detail. And I wouldn't even know today if he wanted to go into that detail. And if he was to investigate their writings, what impact they would have on him. I'm reading quotes from people, we know who they are now, we're very familiar with them here in Lumenbera, if you've come to our talks regularly over the years. Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Justin Martin, St Irenaeus of Lyon, Tertullian. And you'll be finding these quotes on a whole variety of topics. Purgatory, praying for the dead, the Eucharist, the Mass as a sacrifice, etc. And this was just, uh, this was, I, could, I still remember how I felt when I saw this. I had great joy, you know, great excitement. All I wanted to do after reading this book was read more books on apologetics, you know, the faith of our fathers, and whatever I could get my hands on, just so I could get more information to uh, consolidate what I discovered in this book. Anyway, what I'm going to do, that's basically what happened and, any, and I took a very decisive choice in my life. Because the friend I met at uni was associated with a group which were very <coughs> traditionalist and one would say hard line and one would say black and white, you know, Catholics on this side, Protestants or heretics on this side. Yeah. Uh, for me, the choice I made after this discovery was basically to say to Andrew at Sydney Uni, uh, sorry mate, I'm not coming to EU meetings anymore. I'm now associating with a Catholic group. And ringing up Stephen and at the Baptist cricket team and telling him, look, sorry mate, I don't think I want to play cricket anymore. You know, Because a requirement for remaining in the cricket team was that you had to attend the Baptist services once every summer. Um, and I just thought that, that I'm not going to do that. Uh, so it was, for me, it was a very black and white, hard line decision. Uh, the Eucharist was, well, now I'm going to focus on that part of the difficulties that I had concerning the Eucharist. And of course, if you're associating with Baptists or you're associating with evangelicals in the Sydney Anglican tradition, the Eucharist, as believed by the Catholic Church, is a you know, really big red target that they constantly focus on. Um, when I was with the Baptists and attending one of their services, as part of my annual obligation to remain in the cricket team, there was one occasion when they had a communion service and it was, the bread was, imagine sliced bread, normal sliced bread, which has been really diced up into tiny cubes, hundreds of little cubes, put in some basket which is passed along the line and you just take a cube and you eat it. 
and then you have the wine comes along as in little vials, which is just grape juice. And you take one and you drink it. And while this is happening, you have this, I presume, some elder or a deacon at the front. This is what was happening in this cup. Who would just stand at the front and repeat the same words, like a mantra. Memorial meal. Memorial meal. Memorial meal. Because that's all it is. If you're remembering a past event that's once and for all and complete, and you're remembering while you're engaged in this symbolic act where the bread and the wine are taken, because that symbolises the separation of Christ's blood from his body. And it's nothing more than that. And I used to think in those primitive times that all Protestants had this belief that it was just bread and wine and it was just a memorial meal pure and simple and there was no presence of Christ whatsoever. I used to think it was really stark, black and white. The Catholics on this side, full on body, blood, soul and divinity changed through the words of the priest. And I had difficulty to, to grasp that with confidence. And I remember my catechist when I was there in Punch My Boys in Year 12 trying to explain the Mass. And he was saying, you know, at every Mass what happens is a miracle. When the priest says the words, this is my body, this is my blood, what happens is that the bread and wine actually change in the body and blood of Jesus. And I'm thinking in the back of the room, after finishing my mass homework, is that really true? How do I know for certain? How do I know for certain? I'm getting this from Philip Ferrugia in one ear and Stephen in the other ear. How do I know what the Bible means? Which position am I going to fall into with certainty? I didn't know at the time that in between these two views, there were other Protestant views that accepted a presence of Christ in the Eucharist, like the Lutheran view or the Calvinist view, and that what the Baptists represented was just one branch, one opinion of Protestantism in those early years, the Zwinglian position of pure symbolism only. Well, anyway, now I just want to focus the second half of this talk to give an outline of why I came to believe so firmly in the Catholic position on the Eucharist. Now, when you're at Sydney University, it's a great job to have because you always have opportunities to hone your apologetical skills and knowledge. You always come across a new argument from a different person you meet from time to time, one you haven't heard before. One argument I got very recently, about three weeks ago, bumped into this girl named Alice, who's on campus to form a new religious society that's going to unite all the churches. Good luck. Uh, anyway, I mean, that's what Jesus did. He founded a new religious society to unite everybody. Yeah, but he's already tried that. It's still working. All right. Now... Of course, you don't talk like that to people on campus. You talk with a lot more respect. 
patience, which can be very hard. Where well, this girl, Alice, when I'm trying to get onto the Eucharist, she's saying, look, it's not important, it's only peripheral. What's important is salvation. What you must do to be saved. You know, it's about, it's all comes back to this faith alone doctrine. Just accept Jesus. And this came to me yesterday, this girl named Eva, a Baptist, said, you know, when you judge, it's, Jesus is only going to look to see whether you've accepted him as your personal Lord and Saviour. I said, okay, 2 Corinthians 5.10, you come before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for what you've done in the body, good or bad. And she said, oh, so it's about works, is it? And I said, no, it's actually St. Paul. You know, and she just went silent. Uh, but you see, they focus so much on, it's just about salvation. It's an individualistic Christianity. It's about you and Jesus and what, but the minimum you must do to get to heaven. And the Eucharist is just an incidental thing. It's a prescription. It's a ceremony. But it's not obligatory for salvation because no actions, no works are obligatory for salvation. It's a prescription that Jesus gives that you to do it from time to time. Just to remember. But you don't have to do it. Etc. So when I gave this talk today, it was for those in the audience, and fortunately, thanks God, thanks God there were students in the audience who are not Catholics, who are hearing this for the first time. And so, what I'm going to do right now is to firstly establish how important the Eucharist really was for Christians in the early church, meaning the first century in the scriptures. And then we'll have a look at the second century, what follows and why I became so certain about the Catholic position to the, to, to the point of absolutely discarding any other position. All right. I've chosen six quotes from the Scriptures. And it's really, one young fellow said to me once, you know, if the Eucharist is so important, why don't we get it just so clearly outlined in the Bible? You don't. But actually, when you put these pieces together, they do form a, a magnificent mosaic. We all know about John 6 and what the discourse there that's given by Jesus. But I think one verse which is, seems to be forgotten is one that comes early. We focus on verses 50 of, in the 40s and 50s and the 60s, because that's when we come to those really strong verses about, you know, my... My body is bread indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, etc. When he's reaffirming, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. We focus on that, and we should, but not. We shouldn't focus on that at the very beginning. What we should look, what we should focus on at the very beginning is the very first comment that Jesus makes on this point. When we know what he did the day before, he multiplied the loaves and fishes to the five thousand. Then he went around the lake and everyone wanted to know where he was and they came looking for him and they finally found him and Jesus then gets a little, upbraids them a little bit because he knew that they were really bludgers looking for a free sandwich, another free sandwich. They weren't coming looking for him for any really higher spiritual motive but really because they saw him as some guru miracle worker who could do wonders and give them more fit free food. Jesus says the following in verse 27 do not labour for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. 
Hardly anyone I've ever read focuses on that verse. So Jesus stops them and says, look, don't come seeking just normal bread, earthly food for your bodies. There's another food which I'm going to give to you in the future, which the Son of Man will give to you. He hasn't given it to them yet. It's not his teaching or his preaching or his miracles that he's been giving for two years plus already. It's something he hasn't given them yet that he promises to give them in the future. A food that endures to eternal life. So this food he promises to give in the future is connected. Lo and behold, it's connected to eternal life. So it's actually important. It's got something to do with salvation. So these comments that you know, Christianity is all about salvation, the Eucharist is peripheral, is not on. The Eucharist there relates to eternal life. Okay, at least at this stage, this food which endures to eternal life. Alright, then we move on about 20 verses later. 49 to 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So, God the Father, Yahweh, had given to the people of God in a previous time a bread from heaven, miraculous, that they ate every day, and we know that to be the manna from heaven, and it was heavenly bread, but they died. Okay? Now he says this because he's going to compare it to this new bread that he's promising in the future to give, which will be a superior bread. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. So this bread is going to be, okay, firstly, endures to eternal life and has something to do with conquering death. So it relates what we now know and understand to the resurrection, conquering the consequences of sin. And for us, who've got the bigger picture, just to add something else here, is that this is a restoration. Jesus is giving us a restoration of what was originally in the Garden of Eden when there was a tree of life and a fruit which was eaten which sustained them in immortality so they would not die. But because of sin, they were cast out of paradise and the cherubim were put outside the eastern gate with their whirling swords so that Adam and Eve would not re-enter Paradise. Why? It says specifically why in Genesis 3.22 so that they would not access the fruit of the tree of life so they would die. And now Jesus really, what he's preparing them here, this is one year before the Passover, the one, the famous one, the Last Supper, where Jesus is preparing them for a future event where he's going to plant a new tree of life which is the cross on Mount Calvary, and there'll be a new fruit flowing from that, actually to baptism in the Eucharist, which will conquer sin, put us back in grace, and give us a food which endures to eternal life, which, and I'll raise you up on the last day. That's, that, that's a term repeated in, in John 6. So here Jesus is preparing the way to be undoing these consequences of original sin. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my word. No, it's not. He didn't say that. He said, 
The bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's important because in this debate, people are saying that the gift that Jesus intends to give us you know, is his teaching. And all we're required to do is respond in faith and we're saved. But Jesus identifies here what this bread is. And then we have the whole controversy. Now, I'm not going to go into that now because that's a bit too much detail for our purposes tonight. The next point, the next quote I'll take from Scripture illustrates when Jesus actually gives us this bread for the first time, which he promises in John 6.27. Remember John 6.27? Which the Son of Man will give to you. When does he give it to us? When does he give us this bread, which Jesus then identifies as his flesh? See, we've got two concepts here. Bread, which is my flesh. And the two come together in this passage. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So he combines the two here in this moment. The bread that he promises, which is his flesh, that he will give. And this is when he's giving it. At this moment, a year later. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So at that moment, he fulfills what he promises a year earlier, recorded in John 6.27. Okay, well, all right, that's all well and good, but how important was this Remembrance meal in the life of the early Christians. If you still want to harp or still want to focus or limit yourself to just, you know, what's necessary for salvation, how often were the Christians really doing this? We get some glimpses of it. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Three pillars there of the early church. They're identical to today. Nothing's changed, essentially. Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the faith. The Catholic Church says all our teachings are based in the apostolic deposit given by Christ to them. The prayers, we've got the divine office, we've got all the prayers that we can, public and private, we can say. And the breaking of bread was the code word for the Mass. The Eucharist which wasn't said in grand basilicas or cathedrals. It was said in homes at this time. So it was one of the three pillars of Christian practice in the early church. Then there's another verse, which, I've, which I'm sure many have discovered. But you go to Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews, probably St. Paul, maybe St. Barnabas, maybe Apollo, we're not certain. But this scripture, in in the last chapter of the letter of uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, we have this quote. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This is a Christian saying, and he's making a reference to the Jews. We, that's Christian, have an altar from which those who serve the tent, other translations, tabernacle, that meant the temple. 
those who serve the temple are the Jews. But we have an altar from which the Jews have no right to eat. The Christians have a right to eat. What's that altar? That's uh, Hebrews 13.10. What's that altar? What are they eating? What gives them the right to eat it? It has to be the Eucharist. And you have a right to eat it when you believe in Jesus and you're baptised. Of course. And so it's central in the life of the early church recorded in scriptures. And so central. Listen, then we go on to St Paul and Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11. You should be familiar with these quotes. This is St Paul getting angry at the Corinthians because they've been doing a lot of shocking things. When you study Corinthians and you teach it systematically as a Bible study, and you do your reading up on it, you really know that the Corinthians had lost their way in many aspects, many respects. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. What the Corinthians were doing, they were going into temples there in Corinth, pagan temples, and eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods, which is otherwise known as idolites, I-D-O-L-Y-T-E-S, idolites, meat that had been sacrificed to idols and were now to be consumed. It was considered that you had completed the sacrifice when you consumed the meat. And this was scandalous, scandalous especially for young new Christians who had seen this practice. Anyway, St. Paul's attacking these woeful examples in the Corinthian church for doing this. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You notice, the language here isn't symbolic, or it's not a metaphor. It's straight out. He's not saying, is it not a symbol representing the blood of Christ. He doesn't say, doesn't it represent the blood of Christ? No, it's a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. If we all partake of the one bread, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar. What do I imply there? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So again, the Eucharist was so important in early Christian life. You know, you can't... You can't be, it's black and white. You can't be mixing it with pagans once you come to Christ. We have our altar, we have our table, we have a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. If you're participating in that, you've got to completely shun the pagan religion, religions and their sacrifice. Then we've got 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he betrayed, was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup. <clears throat> After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. <clears throat> Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. There's nothing decisive there from a controversial point of view. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now you can't profane a body or the blood unless you're actually doing something against the body and the blood. But interesting here, if you just eat the bread unworthily, you are profaning the body and blood. If you just drink the cup unworthily, you're profaning the body and the blood. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For as anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is, without recognizing what you're receiving. That's the whole point. Whoever eats or drinks without discerning the body, that is, without recognizing what you're receiving, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. How could anyone say, first of all, that the Eucharist was not important in the early Christian life? And I'm just reading from the scriptures here. And how could anyone find in this with these series of quotes, any clear-cut scripture that supports a symbolic point of view, a symbolic belief in the Eucharist. St. Paul's language is so stark, the consequences are so dramatic, you don't recognise what you eat and drink, that it's the body and blood of the Lord, that's why you're sick and that's why some of you are dying. It's as simple as that. Alright. But for me... And to be honest, for someone who's just coming to the scriptures, who's a young person who hasn't read or studied anything, as I was, and you're picking up a Bible written in English, and you've got no footnotes to explain or anything, when you're reading these quotes, I think it would be very hard for someone who hasn't got any catechesis to just simply say, oh, for sure the Bible is 100% clear-cut without a doubt on either the realistic or symbolic viewpoint. To be honest, when you look at the scriptures, there are always quotes that clearly support the Catholic realistic position, what we call transubstantiation. But there are also some quotes that could be taken hold of and people could say support their symbolic position. So, I'm in this situation when I'm a young person. How do I know for certain how I'm going to interpret this? What is the right teaching? Well, the reality, what was historical, what was historical in the early church is that the church didn't get the Bible and read and say, oh, this is what they were doing. Let's do this. This is what we believe it means, so let's do this. That's not what happened. What was happening is that the church was doing this, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers before any New Testament scripture was even written. The church was doing something and believing something about the Eucharist based on what Jesus gave the apostles and what the apostles passed on to the, their first adherents. And now doing that, because that was the tradition they received, not because they got the Bible and read it and said, oh, this is what we believe it means. 
So the proper way to look at scripture, to understand what it means, is to have a look at what the early church was doing, what they believed, and what, what, what they got from the apostles. And that therefore interprets the scripture, if anyone's got doubts about the scripture, what it really means. You don't look at scripture, give your interpretation, and then judge the early church. You have to look at what the early church did, what it received from the apostles, and say, well, that's what the scripture means. Because that's what came first, what the church was doing. And I guarantee you, we might take that on board without any problem, what I've just said. But it's an almighty struggle to get that through into the heads of young people on campus who have been indoctrinated in hardcore anti-Catholicism systematically in their Bible studies, in their talks, in their annual conferences, in their retreats, because I guarantee you come across you come across some real hard walls that no matter what you say, they are never going to accept. And you just leave it to prayer and grace to try and break through that. Alright. So this is why it was so exciting and important to read all these early church teachings, writings. Uh, and they became living personalities for me. Well, I've read these quotes here so many times, but I'll go through it again. Because I'm going to add some commentaries on these quotes from Protestant scholars who make big admissions. They're, they're honest enough to make these admissions. <clears throat> Ignatius of Antioch said to the Smenaeans around the year 110, why do we have to believe him? Well, he's a believer in Jesus. He died for Jesus. Was he engaging in... Did he believe what he did on the Eucharist because the Bible ex explained itself? How many times have I heard that just yesterday? The Bible interprets itself. We don't need to read Ignatius about the Eucharist because we can know what the Bible means about the Eucharist because the Bible interprets itself. Well, couldn't it do that for Ignatius? But actually, you go further and say, no, no, the Bible doesn't interpret itself. You're not correct. Because all those who believe that the Bible interprets itself still can't agree among themselves as to what it means. So your system is not working, even for yourselves, with all respect. But Ignatius is writing this and believing it because he was taught it. Who was he taught? He was taught by St. John. He was made a bishop by St. Peter in Antioch. He lived under St. John's influence for at least 40 years. Remember, John wrote chapter 6 of St. John's Gospel. And he's one of his disciples who becomes one of the most significant men in Christianity. I mean, to be Bishop of Antioch in those days wasn't like being Bishop of Antioch today. Antioch, what's Antioch today? Some insignificant city in an even more insignificant country. I say that because I'm Lebanese. <laughs> right. it's, it's an, you know, who, who knows who's Bishop of Antioch today? It's actually an extra uh, post. Not given to anybody living in Antioch, but usually to Americans. Well, actually, the Maronites claim to be. The, and the Melkites claim it. Right. And the Orthodox claim it. Right. <laughs> They've all got their patriarchs are all centred in Antioch. But to be Bishop of Antioch in those days was to be bishop of that city which probably had the most Christians in the world at that time. 
Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, Alexandria, four of the five great centres. So it wasn't some insignificant position. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their dispute. He is speaking of Gnostics, the Docetae, who don't believe Jesus had a body. Because Jesus didn't have a body, it followed for them that Jesus could not be there in the Eucharist, that the Eucharist couldn't be his body. That's why they abstain from the Eucharist. That's why St Ignatius is attacking them. Now I will just say this is a fact about the second century. The enemies of the Eucharist could be classified in two categories. The Gnostics on one side who said that the Eucharist is not the body and blood of Jesus because Jesus never had body and blood in the first place. On the other hand, were the pagans, the Greco-Roman world, who said that the Christians were cannibals engaged in Thaestian feasts. These attacks were not coming from Christians. Ignatius, Justin, Irenaeus were not heretics. They were the Christians of note in the second century. There were no Christians of note, or even unnotable, if that's a word. <laughs> there were no Christian communities, and there were no Christian apologists fighting Ignatius, Justin, and Irenaeus about what they wrote or taught on the Eucharist. They do not exist. I say that emphatically because I had an hour argument yesterday with a fellow named Philip, who was insisting that there were real, true Christian communities in the second century who definitely believed that the Eucharist was just a symbol and that these had been wiped out by the Catholic believers. So this is fantasy, Philip. This is not historical. You're just making this up on the run. You should become a politician. <laughs> really. This is not true. You don't know who they are. You can't name them. You don't know where they existed. You can't even quote from their writings. They weren't the ones being persecuted. Ignatius, Justin and Irenaeus weren't killing true believers. They were true believers who were being killed. They were all martyrs. Sorry, this is a tragedy what I'm hearing. It's unbelievable what you hear sometimes from allegedly intelligent people. Justin says the following, to, and he went out on a real limb when he did this, because he's writing to the general public, Greco-Roman world, the Senate, the emperors, and he's writing this, this is part of his argument of moral behaviour. What are the Christians really doing in these dark places underground or in homes? They're really doing something which is very innocent. And he says, For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Saviour was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, in other words, so too, I didn't make this up, this isn't Roman Catholicism, I'm actually from Palestine. And Ignatius from Syria, and Irenaeus is from Turkey. None of them are Romans. It's not Roman Catholicism. Anyway, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, 
Now, I had a debate about that yesterday. This guy, Philip, is saying we're all priests and anyone in the early church could celebrate the Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, you're making this up again. Justin says here, okay, okay, no, that's another point which I'll make again very soon. The Lutheran position is that the Eucharist, Christ becomes present substantially in the bread and in the wine through the faith of the people. Calvin taught Christ is present spiritually in the bread and the wine through the faith of the people. Well, poor Justin missed on that one. He says here that the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him. Now, do you notice when he says it's been made into the Eucharist? In other words, it's been changed. It's no longer common bread and common drink. It's has changed. How has it changed? By the Eucharistic prayer set down by him. Who's saying that prayer? <clears throat> and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished, is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnate Jesus. The apostles in the memoirs which they produced, which we call Gospels, have thus passed on that which was enjoined upon them. Who they pass it on to? Ignatius was one of them. But we're saying he, Jesus pass it on to the disciples. That's correct. But Justin says here, the apostles in the memoirs which they produced, which we, we are called Gospels, have thus passed on that which was enjoined upon them. In other words, Justin saying, the apostles have passed on to another generation what they received from Jesus. Where's that generation? Philip's saying that they're all mysterious. They've all been wiped out by the cannibals, the Catholics. Myth, total myth. This is the, these are the generations that it's been passed on to. What's been passed on? That Jesus took bread and having given thanks said, Do this in remembrance of me, this is my body. And in like manner, taking the cup and having given thanks, he said, This is my blood. And he imparted this to them only. Only the disciples received this authority, this power, according to Justin. So where's this myth that any Christian had the power and authority through their baptism to say the Eucharist. Myth. St. Irenaeus says the following, If the Lord were from other than the Father, how could he rightly take bread, which is the same creature creation as our own, and confess it to be his body, and affirm that the mixture in the cup is his blood? That's a simple quote from Irenaeus. We'll have a look at another one better very soon. Now, Philip Schaff is a notable Protestant patristic historian. And he says in his three-volume work, History of the Christian Church, volume three, page 492, the following. <clears throat> now, he looks, he's looking at the first four, five centuries. I'm just, I've just looked at three quotes from the second century. <clears throat> because Stephen said to me, this was the evangelical period. That's why I'm looking. I'm not looking at the post-Constantinian period. It only gets worse. The language is more acute, more precise, more transubstantiational. Right. <clears throat> Philip Schaff says the following. The doctrine of the sacrament of the Eucharist was not a subject of theological controversy and ecclesiastical action to the until the time of Pasatius Radvertus in the 9th century. He's right. 
In other words, no one disagreed about the Eucharist in the early church. You don't get a Eucharistic controversy in the early church. You get a Christological one. You get multiple Christological controversies. Arianism, monophysitism, just to name two. Nestorianism, a third. And subsequently you get these Trinitarian controversies that go for three centuries. But there's no controversy about the Eucharist. And that's, we know that to be the case because no one's writing against Justin and Irenaeus and, and Ignatius. Philip goes on, Schaff here to say, in general this period was already very strongly inclined toward the doctrine of transubstantiation and toward the Greek and Roman sacrifice of the Mass. We haven't touched on that aspect yet. We will soon which are inseparable insofar as a real sacrifice requires the real presence of the victim. But the kind and mode, but then, okay, that's clear what Philip Schaff says. It's a huge concession to Catholicism. Then Philip Schaff tries to regain some ground here when he says the following. But the kind and mode of this presence are not yet particularly defined. Fair enough, because the language is still primitive and being developed, all right? and admit very different views. No, they admit different interpretations of one, if, depending on where you're coming from and what you wanted to read. Christ may be conceived as really present either in or with the elements, that's consubstantiation or impanation, or under the elusive appearance of the changed elements, transubstantiation, or only dynamically or spiritually. So basically what Philip Schaff is saying is that definitely the early church believed that Jesus was present in the Eucharist. But it could have been the Catholic, Lutheran or Calvinist positions. But it's certainly, there's no evidence of the Zwinglian position. That's what Philip Schaff is trying to say. But I don't agree with him. I agree with only the first part that he says. That was already very strongly inclined toward the doctrine of transubstantiation. All right. Now, the Eucharist as a sacrifice is very important as well because <coughs> some can believe in a real presence but at the same time deny that the Mass is a sacrifice. Because what's, where they're coming from is that Jesus can give himself to us as a spiritual food but there's only one sacrifice. It's Mount Calvary and it's once and for all and that's what Hebrews says and it's sufficient to add another sacrifice is a blasphemy. It's to imply or assert that Calvary was insufficient. So there's no way that the liturgy can be a sacrifice. Yes, you can have a liturgy and a miracle takes place and Christ is present and we can receive him as a spiritual food, but any talk of a sacrifice, you can forget it. Well, was that the case in the early church as well? The Didache in the second century, probably a Syrian document, assemble on the Lord's Day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice, and the word there in Greek is thusia, which is sacrifice, may be a pure one. 
for, and what's important here, so the language here, it's, it's so Catholic, isn't it? Even though it's a very ancient document, it's, you know, we come together on Sunday for Mass, and we, get, we have confession before we receive the Eucharist, and that, and it, what we offer up is a sacrifice. It's so Catholic. But then what's important here is that the author of the Didache, we don't know who he is, identifies the Eucharist or with the prophesied sacrifice in Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. And he says, For this is the offering of which the Lord has said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. Well, that's not a that's a paraphrase of the quote. Malachi is more stark than that. It quotes God speaking to the Jews, saying, "I'm no another paraphrase, which is a bit stronger." Basically, God is saying about the Jews, "I'm no longer happy with you. I will not receive a sacrifice from your hands. <clears throat> For my name is great among the Gentiles, and they will offer up from the going down of the sun to its rising again." incense and a pure oblation for my name is great among the Gentiles. Well, where is that fulfilled? Where is this, what, where and what is this sacrifice among the Gentiles prophesied by Malachi? Sure, we know for certain the sacrifices in the temple are over. The temple was brought down in 70, in AD 70. So Malachi's prophecy has been fulfilled clearly there. But what's been put in its place? What's that sacrifice among the Gentiles? Incense in a pure oblation, or pure sacrifice, or pure offering. Different words from different translations. But definitely incense and a pure offering, slash oblation, slash sacrifice. Well, where do we find incense? You don't find it in you know those Calvinist-type places of worship. Certainly don't. But I'm not focusing on the incense here as much as the pure offering. <coughs> St. Clement says the following, letter to the Corinthians, around the year 98, Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. <coughs> what happened in Corinth was that the laity overthrew the episcopate, overthrew the elders and the presbyters. Those were revolt. And Clement's been asked to into, into get involved in this dispute, being Bishop of Rome. And he's basically saying, this is not a small sin if we kick out the bishops. I'll read him again. Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have already finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. These Christian um, presbyters, this episcopate, what are they offering as their sacrifice that only they can offer, that the laity are not offering? Sure, as because of our baptism, we can offer prayer and praise. Everyone can do that. But what is it that only these the episcopates slash presbyters are offering as a sacrifice that we ordinarily do not or cannot? And St. Ignatius again to the Philadelphians, take care then to use one Eucharist, so that whatever you do, you do according to God. For there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup in the union of his blood. One altar 
as there is one bishop with the presbytery and my fellow servants, the deacons. None of those words can admit a type of church that one believes that the Eucharist is purely a symbol, a memorial meal, that's not a sacrifice, and that the Eucharist can be celebrated by anyone and everyone, and that there's no hierarchical leadership in the church. Is that what they've tried to do in Corinth? Sorry? Is that what they were trying to do in Corinth? Uh, No, that's what I've been hearing lately in debates at university from people who try to push that model of church. What what was happening in Corinth, I'm not sure exactly, I can't remember, but all I know is that there was the laity just tossed out their, their leaders for whatever reason. St Irenaeus, the same work against heresies, he took that creative thing, bread, and gave thanks and said, this is my body, and the cup likewise, which is part of that creation to which we belong. He confessed to be his blood, and taught the new oblation of the new covenant, which the church, receiving from the apostles, offers to God throughout the world. Okay, what are those elements here? You notice that Irenaeus is focusing on created things, part of that creation, because he's fighting Gnostics here. Remember I said the opponents of the Eucharist are the pagans or the Gnostics? Because the Gnostics are saying, Jesus, no body, therefore, it's just bread, it's just wine. It's not his body and blood. But here, in this point, what's important is that Irenaeus identifies the Eucharist, or this body and blood, as the new oblation of the new covenant, offered throughout the world, received from the apostles, concerning which Malachi, among the twelve prophets, Prophets thus spoke beforehand. From the rising of the sun to the going down, my name is glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered to my name and a pure sacrifice, indicating in the plainest manner that in every place sacrifice shall be offered to him, and that that a pure one. Again, what is happening in the Protestant world that could fulfil that prophecy? Nothing. Where is that happening? It's happening in the Catholic Church and those ancient churches that stood away from the Catholic Church but retained the priesthood and retained the Eucharist. Why is it that every ancient church, you know, let's say the Coptic Orthodox and the Nestorians, the Assyrians, or etc., all still retain the Eucharist? And the Orthodox churches as, as well. Now, the last historian I'll quote is another Protestant, J.M.D. Kelly, a a very well-renowned patristic scholar. He's Anglican, I think High Anglican. Wrote this in his book, Early Christian Doctrines, page 196. You could read J.M.D. Kelly and you think you're reading a Catholic. You want to know you're reading an Anglican author. The Eucharist was regarded as the distinctively Christian sacrifice from the closing decade of the first century, if not earlier. Malachi's prediction in 1.10 that the Lord would reject the Jewish sacrifices and instead would have a pure offering made to him by the Gentiles in every place was early seized upon by Christians as a prophecy of the Eucharist. 
The Didache indeed actually applies the term thusia, or sacrifice, and the idea is presupposed by Clement in the parallel he discovers between the church's ministers and the Old Testament priests and Levites. Ignatius's reference in Philadelphians to one altar, just as there is one bishop, reveals that he too fought in sacrificial terms. Justin speaks of all the sacrifices in this name which Jesus appointed to be performed, namely in the Eucharist of the bread and the cup, and which are celebrated in every place by Christians. Not only here, but elsewhere too, Justin identifies the bread of the Eucharist and the cup likewise of the Eucharist, with the sacrifice foretold by Malachi. For Irenaeus, the Eucharist is the new oblation of the new covenant. He's a very honest historian who just sums up in that one large paragraph those quotes I just read there. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of this. Um, just going back to a personal note. These are the writings that interpret the scriptures for me. And when you, in, when you come across certain evangelical Protestants, they always talk about, do you have certainty, certainty of salvation? My response is, you can't have certainty of salvation if you don't have certainty of doctrine. Because the belief that you have certainty of salvation must come from a doctrine, from a teaching. But your churches collectively do not exhibit certainty of doctrine. We spoke about the Eucharist. We can talk about baptisms. We can talk about church hierarchy or structure. We could talk about the role of women. We could talk about estacology, the end times, slash the rapture. None of these churches have certainty of doctrine. They have contradiction, confusion, when you look at them collectively. When it comes to the Eucharist, what was my surprise as a young man, in that 21 turning 22, was that the Catholic faith was not something invented in the Middle Ages or was post-Constantinian, but the Catholic faith in the Eucharist was there from the very beginning, immediately after the Apostles. And that the second century, we don't get from Christian writers conflict, contradiction, division. We have absolute unity in belief on the Eucharist regarding the real presence and the Eucharist as a sacrifice. And this didn't come from man. It must have come from Christ to the apostles. Any other belief alleged just doesn't exist. There's no evidence for it in the early church. Either name, region, writing, nothing. It's just a pure fantasy. But the Catholic position, quite the opposite. It's not only my truth, it is the absolute truth. And we just pray and wish that more people, Catholic and non-Catholic, were aware of this. Thanks very much. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.